Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema. I'm your host, Pete Wall. This week, with a very special co-host, um, that will be one Mark Brennan. Uh, you may have heard the name before because Mark is the, I, let's say, the, the powerhouse behind the Exit 6 Film Festival in Basingstoke, which we had recently had the pleasure to uh, attend. Mark, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm liking the use of powerhouse. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think it's suitable. Um, we should say that we're we're without Paul Anderson this week, as you uh, may know. We've put it out there. Paul is away on his wedding slash honeymoon in Mauritius and probably having a, an absolutely wonderful time. So um, shout out to Paul Anderson. No one's going to fill those mighty shoes, but Mark Brennan is going to do his very, very, very best. Um, like like we... a hugely underqualified substitute teacher, I think, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard today that substitute te- teachers are spending half of their uh, yearly earnings on supplies for their own kids. So hopefully you haven't had to fork out for the privilege of being on this show, Mark. Uh, no, just, just lots of cups of coffee have got scattered around me, that's all. Nice, nice, good approach. So the show isn't going to change, although the co-host has changed this week. Mark hopefully will be able to join us again next week if he's not put off by what happens in the next 45 minutes. But what we're going to do is we're going to keep the format as it usually is, which means that we jump straight into the foyer. In the foyer this week, we want to talk about a subject that connects to our man, uh, Paul the Ham Anderson, and that is the subject of weddings. Um, Mark, I wanted to ask you, what is a film that comes to mind when you think about great scenes, great drama, great action maybe even, that connects in some way to matrimony, to weddings, and to that whole event? Well, if we're not talking specifically about wedding ceremonies, whenever when you first mentioned earlier about talking about wedding films, the first thing that sprung to mind to me was the wedding crashes and mm. the opening kind of sequence to that to shout, you know, all the, the montage of all the different weddings they go to, all the shenanigans they get up to. It's yes. not very romantic and not much to do with matrimony, but that's exactly what... I thought of straight away, especially knowing Paul the way we both do. He likes a drink. And um, I think (laughs) there's a lot of drinking in that film that goes on. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So that was what springs to mind for me straight away. And the other one very quickly, which kind of ties into what I think we may talk about later on, is The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler. Nice. Have you seen either or both of those films recently? Like, do they hold up? Uh, I think Wedding Crashes was the last one I watched. And... Yeah, it does. It's really good. It's like seeing Vince Vaughn before he kind of, that was that kind of him at his best. He had a little bit of a dip after that, which I think hopefully he's now coming out the other side of with Brawl in Cell 99, which I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah, but no, yeah, the scary, really intimidating Vince Vaughn, right? Yeah, I mean, he kind of alluded to that a bit within True Detective, you know, whatever you say about season two. <laughs> that that had a lot of uh, uh, bad rep, bad rep for it, but he was good, I thought, and it yeah. was nice seeing him do something a bit less kind of wise, cracky, and jokey and daft. And I'm looking really looking forward to seeing, yeah, the the, the brawl in Cell 99. Yeah, absolutely. The the choice that I made again is it's maybe not the most um certainly not the most upbeat take on on weddings, and I'm sure has little or nothing in common with what's going on with Paul at the moment. But um, have you seen Mark Jonathan Demi's film Rachel Getting Married? No, I haven't. 
So this is the the uh, late and great Jonathan Demi. We, we lost him, I think, back in April of this year. But the, the basic setup is that an actress I really like, Rosemary DeWitt, plays uh, Rachel, and her wedding preparations are interrupted, um, to say the very least, by the character played by Anne Hathaway, who arrives on the scene. She's her sister, and she has a lot of issues that she brings along with her, not least sort of alcoholism and um, a fairly ferocious temper, which leads to all these sort of explosive, dramatic scenes around all the situations we're familiar with, right? Like the the pre-wedding meal and the yeah. preparations of, you know, hair and makeup and things like that. Everything is like you've sort of thrown a hand grenade into that situation. Uh, in the form of this Anne Hathaway character. But I also picked this one because it certainly has to have the best competitive dishwasher stacking uh, scene in any modern film, um, <laughs> in a class maybe occupied only by one. But really, a, a, a wonderful dishwasher scene to recommend this, as well as all the fantastic performances. So that one is um, Rachel Getting Married. It's from 2008, and I'm sure it's widely available if you have a little okay, look around. Okay, that's now on my list. Nice. Um, so, yeah, we will be right back with popcorn movies right after this. We are back with a popcorn movie section in which usually it would be Paul and I. Today it's Mark and I are going to throw back and forward little potted reviews of movies that we've seen in the last seven days or maybe longer. Mark, what have you got for us, first of all? What have you been watching of late? Uh, the film I last watched that I really loved was Colossal. Don't know if you've seen that. You guys yeah, talked about get, that on the show let's, before? Let's get into it. You have the floor and then I'll pitch in when you're, when you're good and ready. Okay, well, Colossal I went into not really knowing too much of what it was about. Out. I'd heard people said that it was it was a bit weird, but I didn't read too much into what the actual story was. So, as it plays out, um, Anne Hathaway plays a character who is a bit of a party girl in New York City, and it's kind of cost her her, her relationship with uh, Dan Stevens, who's kind of given her an ultimatum that she needs to sort herself out if there's any hope of them ever being together again. So to do this, she goes back to her hometown, which she hasn't been to in years, where she bumps into. Jason Sudeikis, who she was friends with when they were much younger and in, in uh, primary school. And um, I thought it was going to turn into this kind of um, one of those films you see all the time, you know, where the big slick city guy is actually bad for the person. And once she goes home to her hometown and meets the good old boy from her childhood, like that's mm. what she needed all along, not the slick guy from the city. And it, it it didn't turn into that kind of film, which I was very pleasantly surprised by. And that's before I get into the fact that there are these giant robots and monsters seemingly fighting in South Korea. Uh, and Anne Hathaway is somehow connected with all of that all the way away in upstate New York. Yeah, so this is the Anne Hathaway is an alcoholic episode, uh, by the sounds of it, because we've had yeah. Rachel getting married and, and this one colossal. So this is Nacho Vigalondo, the, the director who made a film um, called Time Crimes, a Spanish language film called Time Crimes. I believe he's originally perhaps Argentinian, the director. Um, and I loved, loved, loved that film. And when we heard buzz about this, I think Paul and I did it as a sort of coming attraction. And I was really excited. I like Anne Hathaway these days quite a lot. Um, Jason Sudeikis is is always sort of welcome company or, or in most places or most times that he pops up, I think. 
I guess the problem that I had or the problems that I had with this film were one that I don't think Jason Sudeikis had the range for what it was that he was asked to do in this film. Um, All right. There's a film. I don't know if you're aware of it. This film called uh, Drinking Buddies with Jason Sudeikis, where he's like a he owns or works at a microbrewery. I'm aware of it, but I haven't seen it. So the the role is at least on the surface similar to what he has to do um, initially in in Colossal, and I felt like that film worked because it played to the strengths of an actor who seems like this sort of um, amiable, if slightly um, drifting, presence in films who maybe doesn't have the sort of drive or direction that he needs to get from from A to B, depending on the character that he's playing, obviously. Whereas in this film, when we get into the stuff that you hinted at with the sort of um, monsters and the South Korean attacks and the and the sort of falling apart of their relationship, I felt like Jason Sudeikis was sort of drowning a little bit in those in those scenes, but. You know, I think Anne Hathaway gives her all. I think uh, it's it's one that you sort of have to tell people to see for themselves. I, I'm sure you'd agree about that, right? You, Absolutely. It's very yeah. hard to convey what this film is. Yeah, it really is, and then that's what I that's why I enjoyed so much about it. Um, it was the first thing I'd seen in a long time where it didn't kind of fall into any kind of formula, and mm. it had lots of nice twists and turns. I mean, I understand what you're saying about. Sudeikis maybe being not entirely selling his performance to you, but that notwithstanding, I felt what they did with the character from a writing point of view was really interesting because, as mm. I said, it could have so far easily fallen into the old go back to the hometown and it's the good old boy that this woman needs to sort her life out. And it doesn't do that at all. It kind of it suggests to you that that's where it's going. And at that point, I was thinking, oh, no, please don't let this turn into another one of those. And then yeah. it really doesn't. And um, I think for that reason alone, I think whoever was playing that part, I think just the way it was written, it was always going to be a nice kind of twist on that kind of thing. And then you add into it the, the monsters and the, and the giant robots in Korea and how that's all connected. And it's just something I found to be just really fresh and different. It's why, It was like one of those... Those films in the 80s that would have had a ridiculous pitch in a room that you have no idea how anybody ever gave it the money to be made. Yeah, and, absolutely. And it's like one of those films that doesn't tend to get made these days, I don't think. Um, and I just loved it. I thought it was great. There was there was a short that Paul recommended to me, um, and it's on one of our episodes. I think it may have been off of a uh, VH, one of the VHS anthology uh, horror anthology things, which is a segment directed by this director Nacho Vigalondo, where it, the character there builds some kind of um, I don't know futuristic machine and manages to walk into a parallel world where he meets himself. Um, okay, and it was j- just because you said this word inventive connected to this film he's Hmm. a director whether you like like love or or potentially loathe the stuff that he does he always seems to bring something new and fresh and interesting so yeah I I think that there are elements of of this film that didn't work for me maybe as well as they did for you but I think you cannot fault the guy on and, and the cast as well on sort of the amount that they they brought to it oh absolutely yeah, yeah, and especially seeing Dan Stevens pop up, and there was—I mean, it's not the biggest role for him, but having spent a lot of the year loving Legion, it was mm. great to see him. I like him whenever he pops up anywhere now. Um, but yeah, seeing him, getting a guy like that in a role that small, I thought was a real testament to the, the filmmaker as well to get hold of that guy. And yeah, there's a strong, strong trio in there, and some great support from Tim Blake Nelson as well, who's really good. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We just wax lyrical for it seemed like episodes on end about Dan Stevens in the guest. 
so oh yeah yeah, yeah. All, all for him um we should move this thing along and i'm gonna try not to stick on this one for for quite as long just because it might break me down into horrible tears but the uh <laughs> the first film i wanted to talk about on popcorn movies this week is a documentary that i caught with uh on netflix it's streaming at the moment in the uk at least which is called kingdom of us um Kingdom of Us is the directorial debut of uh, a woman called Lucy Cohen, and she's had... It's sort of one of those documentaries where the filmmaker has had this access to a uh, familial situation that just sort of spirals into sort of more than you possibly could have imagined, I think, going in. It reminds me, to that extent, of something like Capturing the Freedmans. Um, what we're dealing with is a family torn apart at the seams by the suicide of their, the father. Um, right. he in the film has, we're basically shown like a sort of montage of family home recorded images. Again, sort of a link with that capturing the Freedmen's thing where you feel like sometimes you're almost too close. Sometimes you're almost, you feel like sort of invasive in the amount of access that you're getting to these people because they're recording a lot of it themselves. So you go back to sort of early childhood. In the family, there are seven children, six girls and one boy. Um, uh, two or three of them, I think, are, are suffering and dealing with autism growing up. But when the oldest is 16 and the youngest is nine, their father uh, cuts his wrist and his neck and walks into the woods and dies. And it is revealed then through various bits of information that actually he was suffering with bipolar disorder, um, which led to him being at turns incredibly creative, um, as we're often told, you know, people suffering the condition might be. Um, he was a, a, a clearly quite talented musician. He'd performed as a younger man and now he was sort of, we see him uh, composing impromptu songs with his kids at the piano and stuff like that. But then we see these pieces of footage where he's on the downslope and where he is mute and unable to communicate. There's a scene that stood out for me where he's um, given a birthday cake by his young daughters and right. he can't even raise like a, a smile, a grin, a comment, a thank you, because he's so deep in that sort of personal hole of, of depression and, and the hold on him is is so apparent. What is even more, I guess, um, intriguing is the wrong word, just, just difficult and troubling about this documentary is that it's revealed um, through uh, a document found by the family that he had intentions to kill his wife and children before ending, oh, wow. his, ending his own life. And it's, and it's brought to this point where one of the daughters um, is, is sort of thinking out loud about how maybe what her dad's done is actually remove himself from the situation in order to save everybody else, which brings to mind something as sort of um, seemingly disconnected as maybe the, the ending of Donnie Darko or something like that. It's, it's almost got this like mm. mythological uh, a strain to, to the filmmaking. But this is all to say that Kingdom of Us is a documentary that just hit me in the gut harder than almost anything I've seen in the last few years. Maybe uh, Etra Avoir notwithstanding, because I spoke about that quite recently and that that did a number on me as well. Um, or something like Dear Zachary, anyone who's had the uh, pleasure and 
at the same time utter misfortune to see that documentary will know what I'm talking about. So don't go into this one lightly. Uh, don't go into it if you're feeling too fragile, but absolutely please don't miss it because it's a, an incredible, incredible piece of filmmaking and, and just achingly, achingly personal and, and, and I think revealing about struggles that in different forms, so many people the world over are going through on a daily basis. That one is called Kingdom of Us, and it is streaming on Netflix at the moment. Mark, have you got something cheery? Have you got a comedy? What's your second pick? <laughs> I have to follow that up with. Um, no, I was going to talk about a film I saw at the cinema last week. Okay. Um, I have only ever twice in my life walked out of a film. Uh, right. in the cinema and this was the second of those times the film was the snowman um, yes, it's michael fassbender's, fassbender's new it. yeah well i'm not sure if you should well i'm what's baffled me about this film is it's, it's actually picking up three star reviews from the guardian and places like that but um it's basically michael fassbender taking on the nordic noir thriller which is which is very popular at the moment apparently it's very on a very popular book and i believe it's directed by um i forget his name guy directed the original let the right one in yeah, um, so Alfredson I expected, is that guy? yeah, so I, I expected sort of good things from it. It's just solid, not spectacular, but solid. The film is basically about, uh, Michael Fassbender, who plays this broken alcoholic cop, as they all are in all of these things, um, with, a, with a, a, an ex and a, and a kid that isn't his, but he was kind of the father of, at least the, the father role model for. So, um, he's got some issues with that. Um, and, there is a killer who's who's killing people and he's putting their body parts in snowmen and yeah, that's how he's displaying them and announcing his arrival so he it, builds a snowman and he'll put like their head on it kind of thing right because this the reason i think i've i've been slow on the uptake when it comes to to get into the cinema to see this one is um, as much as I, I've liked Joe Nesbo adapted or Yo Nesbo, I don't know how we're supposed to pronounce that adaptations like mm. Headhunters, I thought was really cool. But, um, as a writer, I don't think the, um, the source material is, is great. I don't think it really stands up, um, on any sort of literary level. But, um, maybe that's a bit snobbish of me. But then when I saw the trailer for this, it, it struck me as just like quite silly. Does it come over? <sighs> It comes across as definitely silly, but in the sense that it strikes me as a film that they didn't finish making and they've just cobbled together what material they had to try and put some kind of coherent narrative together. Um, Val Kilmer is in it looking, um, uh, not his best. He's got, he's got some kind of some unusual thing going on with, with his jawline and the film very much seems to have been his scenes. They seem to have edited around him. Like either right. his voice has been dubbed over or wherever he is going to speak, they cut to just something in the room. So we're hearing him talk rather than see him actually give any kind of performance whatsoever. And it's a pe very peculiarly edited film. It, like I said, it feels like something that wasn't actually finished or had loads of problems and they've mm. just tried to cobble together the, the best thing they possibly could. And it just gets worse and worse and worse as the film goes on. And what struck, what surprised me most about it was the, the cast it has is incredible. It, it, more more famous faces kept popping up i wasn't expecting to see toby jones appears at one point jk simmons is in it um rebecca ferguson's in it. chloe chavini chavini is that her name chloe chavini savini yeah, yeah she she pops up in it as well and um these and there's even some other actors whose names i forget but you would absolutely recognize their faces and there's just it looks nice uh there's an amazing cast but there just seems to be some proper fundamental problems with the whole thing it's like one of those um 
films you think that some financiers have got together and need a tax roll so they've mm. just thrown this film together thrown some money at it put some faces in it but no one had any interest in actually making a film <laughs> um I, that's pretty scathing i'm usually pretty you know positive about stuff i've watched but that film was dreadful and i had to walk out after an hour because it got to a point where it didn't even seem like the actors were even trying anymore it's almost like fast wants to roll his eyes at the camera when somebody yeah. else delivers another it, dreadful line to him in the it's scene a, it's a rare sort of unique uh, experience when you have that thing when you're in the cinema and you almost feel like you can see actors looking at each other and communicating something with their eyes like what are we doing here? Where is this going? Why did I sign on to this project? And maybe it is projection on the part of people watching the film, but I think there are certain projects that feel so sort of doomed from the outset or maybe so muddled in their in their inception that it's hard to get away from the fact that people are sort of regretting their life choices as you watch the uh, minutes tick by. Absolutely, especially in a film where he's taken himself off somewhere in Scandinavia, which is absolutely freezing cold. And some of these scenes are particularly standing outdoors in freezing cold weather, mm-hmm. looking just miserable next to whoever he's with. And I understand the character is meant to be that way as well. Like I said, he's a he's a, an alcoholic character with, with a lot of his own issues going on. But um, the, the, the police work, that is, well, quote-unquote police work that goes on in this is just so ridiculous. Like even the armchair detective at home, you know, kind of watches this and thinks there's, there's, no, there's nothing clever about this at all. It's so lazily written. For example, a character is found with their head shot off shut in their own garage um sat on a chair and uh it appears passbender points out quite obviously that where all the the, the ricochet from the from the shotgun shot has gone couldn't possibly be from where the, they couldn't have possibly shot themselves basically and he tells this to uh one of his co-workers he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and then kind of says oh it's not really our problem and then fastbender accepts that and then it moves on to the next scene and that's when i walked out because it was just bad it was so bad um yeah i I think i think that uh the the harry hole character or harry hurler at the center of uh this saga there's a whole series of books from joe nesbo about the same character yeah i've read a couple of those novels um here and there because there was a lot of hype around around the author and the character seems like weirdly conceived to begin with but i think once you take this slightly oddly conceived like sort of terse um, I don't know, almost like Max Payne-ish character out of the environment in which he was born and stick him into, you know, the body of, of Michael Fassbender and, and the English language. I think it just creates even more problems, possibly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, on, and to tap all that off, there's this, uh, which I haven't seen for a while, a weird piece of technology that's brought introduced into this film. Now, I don't know if this is a real thing Scandinavian police use or not, but it's essentially a really chunky massive less sophisticated ipad that they carry around into to interview situations and they record people when they're giving statements of one and they can look up the database of of the criminal database while they're out and about and do all these things they possibly couldn't do with an ipad with this thing that's twice the size twice three times as thick looks like something from blade runner actually it looks like something that they would use to do the retinal scan in blade runner and this dreadful awfully designed thing that they carry around with just just made it all so much worse because <laughs> it just thought not only is the police work bad what is this thing that's that's in, been <laughs> shoehorned into this story 
they're just carrying an Atari around with them from case to case, and they've all got like their own. It's just, it's just, I can't. I've lost my train of thought because it's that terrible. Like I said, there's only twice I've ever walked out of a film in the cinema, and that was that one. The first one, if you were interested, was uh, yeah. Stuck on You from the Farrelly Brothers. Wow, so it's in really special company then, the Snowman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a special shelf that one. Well, talking of uh, carrying around cumbersome, uh, weighty items, I'm gonna segue <laughs> into my second film, which is a really rather good, I think, British horror film called The Ritual that's out at the cinema on, I think, fairly wide release at the moment from director David Bruckner. This one deals with a group of uh, guys. There are initially five of these these lads. Uh, maybe mid mid thirties. Some of them are a little older than that. So ish, similar age to your uh, co-hosts today, I would say. And um, <laughs> in a in a sort of establishing early scene that I believe has been um, entirely created by the screenwriter as a, a an addition to the source material, which is a, a novel. One of the characters goes into the off into an off license to buy a bottle of vodka at the end of a night, and his buddy goes in with him. And there's a robbery, which leads to the friend being bludgeoned over the head and bleeding out and dying. And this leaves his friend with this great burden of guilt that in that moment, in that instant, he was a coward. He didn't do anything. He sort of cowered right. in the corner and and failed to act. Uh, we jump forward about six months and the remaining friends are in the Swedish countryside. It's a bit of a Scandi theme emerging. <laughs> uh, they're in the Swedish countryside because they've gone on a, a, a lad's holiday that would have been sort of signed off on by their absent friend. They've sort of gone on this trip in his honour, so they pour pour one out for their friend and they're trying to reconnect with each other but also reconnect with their memories of him from the time they spent together all the way back in university and and sort of beyond but what we get here is this sort of amalgam of a load of horror films that if you're into this kind of thing you'll be very familiar with we sort of start off in territory of something like um perhaps uh kill list uh uh, came okay. to mind, or The Wicker Man, maybe, because they go, oh, a Blair Witch Project is obviously there. The further they go into the woods, they see sort of signs of um, some kind of satanic, possibly, ritual, some witchcraft. And then the tension's ramped up, as it would be in, in this kind of a film. The guys seem increasingly affected by their surroundings and by the sense that there might be something else out there that they don't understand. Um, and then the film sort of takes a turn into possibly even stranger territory that I don't want to spoil here. But I just want to really summarise by saying that the standout performance comes from the guy who carrying all the all the guilt around with him, and that's the actor Rafe Spall, who I like quite a lot anyway. Yeah. But really, really strong in in this film. Um, and it has this kind of groundedness that I think is its great strength. I think a lot of whether it's British or American or otherwise, horror, genre horror like this, tends to become very... Um, uh, the, the scripts all fall into a very familiar pattern and characters act in the same sort of unbelievable way that you're used to from the screen but not from real life. Whereas here what we have is like quite naturalistic dialogue. We have characters who seem like they actually have realistic tensions and at the end of it, when we do get to the eventual resolution again, which I'm not going to spoil, it really um, would work well as a companion piece uh, with The Descent. It's sort of like okay. a male 
walk in the woods version of the women underground and the descent but yeah if you like any of the films i've mentioned you'll definitely like this if not give it a try anyway that one is called the ritual and it's out on general release now we will be back in just a moment with some coming attractions so mark Coming attractions, what is it that is uh, on your radar that you're excited about, whether at the cinema or on streaming release or, or anywhere where you might watch your films in the nearish future? Uh, the film I think I'm most excited to be seeing soon, hopefully after hearing good things from the London Film Festival uh, last week, is The Shape of Water, um, Guillermo del Toro's new film. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard nothing but good things from people that have been into the, the screening at the festival um, last week. And uh, it's got me wildly excited to see it. I'm a big fan of all of his other work, even Pacific Rim, um, and, uh, especially Pan's Labyrinth, obviously. Um, so very much looking forward to that one. Um, I don't know how long it'll be till it actually is out. I can't remember when it's actually released in cinemas, but hopefully now that it's been at the festival, it won't be too long. Do you know if there's, have you seen a, a teaser trailer or anything like that for the film at this point? I have. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, it looks like, um, hang on. Uh, I was going to look at it then. Um, no, I have. It looks, uh, again, the, the imagination that goes into it, so much of his work with um, sort of the creatures and the fantastical, and uh, it just looks like, again, something different that isn't the kind of films that are coming out a lot lately, a bit like Colossal, you know, just mm. trying something new. And um, for that reason uh, alone, I definitely think it's one to, to keep an eye out for. I find he's done very well at lots of festivals, in Toronto, at Telluride, at the Venice Film Festival as well. Yeah. Um, so it's nice to see him doing something that's more in the vein of Pan's Labyrinth and less so specific rim yeah right i've done my best to avoid getting too much information about the film because like you mark i'm really excited for anything that guillermo del toro does and particularly um with that kind of bent in mind towards the kind of uh, magic realist and sort of fantastical stuff so yeah yeah i'm i'm really excited for that one and funnily enough i've picked a coming attraction that is also a film that's doing quite well on the festival circuit at the moment and might be you know a good few months away from from release it is uh, a film called golden exits and the director is a man called alex ross perry i don't know how many people will have caught up with his stuff so far but his last film was called um the queen of earth with elizabeth moss and before that another film with elizabeth moss called uh, listen up philip which was pretty much about uh philip roth the the author um and the difficulties that he had in sort of maintaining relationships and also being a sort of uh creative force of nature um golden exits stars an actress who I I have goodwill towards, although she frequently seems to let me down, and that is um, Emily Browning. Emily Browning, she sort of came to prominence with uh, Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events, I think when she was a a teenager, but since then has, has taken all kinds of choices. I think some of them interesting like um sleeping beauty some of them really silly like uh sucker punch and some of them just just odd like the Catherine hardwick film plush where she's in a sort of punky rock band yeah very um up and down in terms of quality control i think emily browning hopefully here she is sort of going to be given the chance to flourish alex ross perry writes these sort of scabrous 
scripts based around often fractious and fractured relationships. This one, it says, is an intersectional narrative of two families in Brooklyn and the unravelling of unspoken unhappiness that occurs when a young foreign girl spending time abroad upsets the balance on both sides. So it's not going to be um, a barrel of laughs, I wouldn't imagine, but it is going to be very, very well written. There's some buzz coming out of festivals already, and I am kind of on board with Alex Ross Perry at this point, so I'm excited for um, Golden Exits, which should be around in the UK, I'm going to say maybe first quarter of next year. But that's almost entirely a guess. Um, <laughs> we, will, we will be right back and we're going to get right into our feature reviews for this week. Okay, Mark, so let's do this thing. We've got two films to feature review this week. And um, if I'm rushing through some of my links, it's because I'm sort of wincing my way through this entire episode, given that I managed to, I think, break my hand yesterday evening. So, um, oh. yeah, so that's not put me in the best physical nick for um, for having a chat about films, but I'm getting through it Um we're going to get through, though, two films. First of all, we've got the Mayor Witz stories. Uh, I believe the subtitle is New and Selected. But this is the new one from Noah Baumbach that people will know from uh, being the director of things like The Squid and the Whale um, and Greenberg a little bit more recently. And just a couple of years ago, uh, While We're Young with uh, Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts, which I enjoyed quite a lot. Before we get into the review, Mark, have you seen While We're Young? I haven't, no. You're making have me you... look bad, but I haven't seen any of these films. Sorry, I put you on about. the spot. It's have... another one I haven't seen. I, uh, I haven't there... seen it. <laughs> no. uh, were you coming into Mayor stories, were you familiar with Noah Baumbach's sort of style? Have you have you seen uh, his stuff? Yeah, I, 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 similar, I know he's worked a lot with Wes Anderson, and I found this, a, a kind of uh, blithe of him in, in that, yeah. Yeah, so... The the setup for this one, and we should say uh, off the top that the Mayowitz stories uh, again is streaming on Netflix now. It's got a limited cinematic release, but you can watch it in the comfort of your own home. Um, <laughs> basically, we've got a situation where Dustin Hoffman is an aging and sort of, um, I guess now retired uh, architect. Mm, architect, that's not the correct term, I don't think. Architect. Oh, Design. sculptor. Sculptor, that's right. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, sculptor of, of these sort of abstract sculptures, some of which are displayed in public, but it seems like he hasn't quite made it in his career to the sort of uppermost echelon within his field. Um, and then in his wake are two sons and a daughter from different marriages, one of whom is played by Ben Stiller, as mentioned, one of whom is played by Adam Sandler. We'll get onto that uh, in just a moment. And uh, one of whom is played by an actress called Elizabeth Marvel. As the story progresses, the guys and uh, their sister pretty much spend their time wrestling with the grievances that they hold against their father from the way that he's treated them and perhaps neglected them during their upbringing. I believe, Jack, we have a clip. We do have Here's a clip. Dad, you remember that song I wrote about that guy who worked at your studio who you never remembered his name? His name was Myron, but you called him Myron. Three times you called him Myron, till you heard the other guy say it with a B. Myron, Myron, Myron. Myron. 
So from that clip, you may have gathered the Adam Sandler character in this film is, um, and we'll start with him. He is the son who I guess has taken uh, a turn into sort of harder times. He spent 16 or 17 years as a stay-at-home father and by all accounts has sort of squandered a fairly formidable talent for music. So he uses this talent to bond with his teenage daughter um, and I've, uh, Grace Van Patten, the, the girl uh, who plays his daughter, I think is about 18 yeah. years old in the film and, and really, really good. Um, he bonds with her. They seem to have a really um, strong and mostly very um, healthy relationship. However, in the regard of other people, he's kind of a failure. This is not the first time we've seen Adam Sandler in a serious role, but let's be frank, there haven't been many. Um, Start off with him, Mark. What did you make of Adam Sandler in the in the film? And I suppose your overview to begin with of whether this thing worked for you or, or didn't, the male witch stories. Well, starting with did the film work for me? It, it absolutely did. What what I liked from the, the very beginning was uh, the way it was it's edited very quickly and you're kind of thrown in with this family and what their relationships are to each other and how they speak to each other, how they will change the subject in the middle of a conversation. And you as a viewer are just trying to, to keep up with these guys to try and sort of figure out who's who, what the relationships are, what the dynamics are. And um, Adam Sandler, I think, is is a brilliant choice to lead you into that because this family is riddled with, with, with deep-seated issues that are all become clear throughout the film. But he's such a... Uh, you know, like a, he can be a very likable, kind of um, safe kind of guy. You think with Adam Sandler at first, maybe I'm not going to be watching the most hard-hitting kind of drama mm. that he is capable of. Um, but it's good to see him trying something a bit like it here. And it starts with with a bit of comedy, you know, with him and his he's in his car trying to park in New York, which proves to be a nightmare. And uh, we get to see him shout and swear, which he loves doing, and everybody loves him doing. Like a swear. So you kind of get it feel at home with him straight away but he he just naturally draws this empathy from you immediately and you can see so clearly so quickly that he is kind of the downtrodden kind of disappointment of the family you know dustin hoffman does a very good job of letting everybody know how little he thinks of their aspirations and achievements compared to his own but he's the dad at the end of the day and adam san is very good at kind of he always looks just so pained and he's just he's just taking everything that his dad's dishing out and just giving nothing back but but love and you just feel for him all the way through. He is very good. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, Punch Drunk Love um, gave this window into a sort of parallel universe where Adam Sandler is mining the well of obvious sort of deep sadness within his soul that could mm. have made for a career, I think, of, of really quite quite powerful work and instead he's made jack and jill a number of times but um yeah yeah, yeah. and he, the westerns he's done on netflix as well are just just yeah it's just maddening just well, the guy it, has that much talent why shouldn't he be doing more stuff like this and his name almost becomes synonymous with sort of poor quality and cash grabs which which is a shame and and so yeah you're absolutely right it's so good to see him doing something a bit more nuanced and a bit more layered like the performance that he gives here and then we should say as well you know it's not the first time that Ben Stiller's worked with Noah Baumbach but um Ben Stiller again I think very good he's very good at doing that sort of um uh like like pent up overachiever um thing that he he seems to uh 
to embody in a, in a lot of work. I mean, the earlier Ben Stiller stuff, he was a bit more sort of bumbling and maybe um, getting into sort of scrapes uh, and whatnot. But later career, Ben Stiller is almost like he's got this single-mindedness and this determinedness and this um, this streak of sort of ability, just, just inherent ability about him. But at the same time, that doesn't pull him above some of these petty squabbles disagreements and and the thing that sort of undercuts everything in this film which is this sense that whoever we are in relation to our parental figure we might never be enough and the film never really suggests that we're going to get a sort of happy comfortable resolution where everybody gets what it is that they needed emotionally in fact we get them opening up these wounds and sort of bleeding a little bit without ever feeling like necessarily life works out in a way where everything is sort of squared off at the end. And I think I appreciate the screenplay all the more for that for that fact. And I should say, obviously, this screenplay is written by Noah Baumbach himself. Um, some people have said there's a, an influence of his now partner, Greta Gerwig, in his more recent work. Maybe that is true. I don't know. That's a, a difficult conversation, I think, to have with any any real insight because we don't know how that how that works behind the scenes. But um uh, apart from that, Mark, Dustin Hoffman, I think here on on very very finest form, at least for I don't know, I want to say even like twenty or thirty years. What did you make of his performance? Uh, I thought he was fantastic. I mean, he really um, he has this great way of um, he's almost in a scene on his own for for much of the much of the film. I mean, I know it's because of the nature of the character, but he's so good at this character is so self-absorbed and so in his own world that he's very good at even kind of almost ignoring everybody around them while still absolutely knowing what everybody around him is doing. Um, I think that's a, 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 takes a, a brilliant actor to be able to do that as far as I'm concerned. And um, it's, a, it's a shame to start see, seeing him really beginning to look his age. Um, it yeah. gets me a bit worried the way with who we've been losing in lately. But, uh, but yeah, no, he is. Um, he's absolutely brilliant in it and yeah. very much reminiscent. I felt of um, Gene Hackman in the Royal Tenenbaums and the fact that this guy's presence and his influence over his whole family just dribbles down the generations. And absolutely. you can totally see that coming from a guy of his charisma and um he just totally sells the the kind of toxic relationship he has with all these kids which he seems to have no idea that he has yeah it's it's almost like in his own mind he is so sort of yeah you almost can't blame him because it's almost like he has so little self-awareness about how much he's putting people down like with offhanded comments that he didn't even notice that he made that yeah. he's so set on that path that there's not going to be again there's not going to be this resolution this time where he has his sort of comeuppance and, and realizes the error of his ways and the kind of thing that we're familiar with seeing in you know stories about characters reaching maybe the twilight of their lives and I was going to say on your previous point let, let's hope that Dustin Hoffman can uh, punch the aging process right in the nose because uh, yes. that's one of the yes. things I enjoyed most about this was the way that his character just wants to punch everyone in the nose I wanted to add to that on just little things things that'll stick with me towards the end we get this uh this speech uh speechifying i don't even know if that's a word we get a couple of speeches from the the two sons played by adam sandler and ben stiller and the line that stands out is where one of the sons says uh, i wanted to believe that he was brilliant because otherwise he's just a prick 
And I think that kind <laughs> yeah. of, uh, it quite nicely sums up what we're dealing with in uh, the Mayowitz story. So, uh, yeah, I think from both of us, it's a, a, a sort of Roger Ebert thumbs up on this one. And I would say also, um, I mentioned her very quickly, but Grace Van Patten, the girl who played the daughter, I imagine is going to go on to, to sort of great things in the future. So keep an eye out for her. But um, yeah, The Mayowitz Stories is, as I said before, streaming now on Netflix. We will be back in just a moment with our review of Blade Runner 2049. So this is going to be, uh, <laughs> we're going to have to hold ourselves back because otherwise it could probably talk two hours and I've got to, uh, got to wrap the show up probably in the next sort of 10 to 15 minutes. But, um, Blade Runner 2049, we caught up with this, I believe, at the same screening, Mark. In fact, I'm, I'm very confident of that fact. It might have been in, in Bristol and involved Paul's stag weekend, I believe, at Showcase Cinemas. Yes. Yeah. There was a grand plan, Mark, uh, between Paul and I, which is, uh, get back off the stag on the Sunday, having gone out with yourself and others on Friday and Saturday night. Um, get into our little recording studio and record this episode right after the stag where we could review Blade Runner uh, 2049. Evidently that did not happen because uh, we were a little bit tired when we got back. So um, we are now here uh, with our guest co-host Mark to review Blade Runner 2049 and you know, obviously, there's a lot been said about this already. We would have put the review out probably a week earlier, as I said. But what can we tap into that maybe hasn't been spoken about so much? I think we should dive right into, Mark, the fact that I think uh, we all talked about coming out of this screening, or at least a, a small group of us, the way that this film manages to get pacing absolutely right when placed next to the original Blade Runner. Is that something you would co-sign on? Is that something that sort of rang true when you saw this one? Oh, absolutely. It is the, the perfect kind of complementary follow-up to Blade Runner, which for all its... Um... Uh, razzle dazzle special effects you know when when i was a kid and i first saw blade the poster for blade runner i was expecting some action-packed uh sci-fi thriller with harrison ford chasing down robots and you know big fight scenes and everything which of course those things happen but at a snail's pace throughout Mm. the whole kind of two hours that it lasts for and i'm glad that with blade runner 2049 they have stayed kind of true to that they haven't tried to uh, modernize it in that kind of action film kind of way they've stayed true to the to the tone and the style and the measured kind of storytelling that was in the original and for that it is it 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 felt to me like it was made with an awful lot of love and dedication to that first film oh i mean that it's sort of a a wash with yeah i mean the word you said i couldn't put it better like the love from denis villeneuve and this team for the source material is just indisputable. Like whether you love or or don't like this film so much, uh, it, yeah, it's everywhere in every inch of of the uh, of the screen. Really. Um, before we move any further, to get a, a better sense of Blade Runner twenty forty nine for anyone who's late to the party, here's a little clip. The nickel is for the colonial ships. Closest any of them or any of us is going to get to that grand life off world. Come on now. What sword you have in mind? Because I got all kinds. Oh, no, no. I'm not buying. No, no, no. This is just my game, and I play it fair. 
So that scene buried somewhere within the the middle of the two hours and forty two minutes or whatever it was that we were in the uh, the screening for is uh, an interaction between Ryan Gosling's character, who is a, a, a so called Blade Runner, and a man who is operating what seems to be a sort of um, sweatshop occupied solely by young children uh, working and slaving away. <laughs> Um, yeah, the the mood of the piece, as you would expect, coming from from the original, is pretty gloomy um, at points. I think slightly overbearingly so. But did you ever feel, Mark, that there was any part for you that that didn't quite work, or anything tonally that didn't work for you? Being that I take for granted the fact that you are quite a big fan of the original Blade Runner, is there anything you point to here and say, "Hey, this bit"? would be something that I would do differently if I was in the director's chair? Uh, certainly not tonally. I think they've got that spot on throughout. And and this might maybe... Un- I feel like I might be being unfair when I point out some of, of the story that had me scratching my head because we were all massively hungover from Paul Stagg and um, very tired, very tired behind those... 3D glasses where it did struggle to keep my eyes open a little. Not because of the film. In fact, I think it's a testament to the film being so good that I managed to stay awake at all because all I wanted to do was sleep. But um, in terms of what was what I would do differently, I think um, there's a. It's hard to say without giving anything away because it's a big part of the film. But the, the, there is a reference to a character from the first film. Um, and something that they have been through, which has ultimately led to their death, which had me wondering and thinking through more of the film than I probably should have been as to how that could possibly be, be achieved and, and be mm. something that can happen. Um, it seemed like an impossible kind of story extension to me, which I realize makes no sense when you don't know what I'm talking about. You probably will because you have seen it, but um, it's more like the mechanics of how is this thing possible that, that Ryan Gosling is looking for? That, that's the mission he's been put on is to track down this thing. And I was trying to how this thing could even exist. Um, that I would have liked a little more kind of explanation of, but other than that, um, yeah, I mean, I, well, no, that would probably be it. That's a, that's an interesting point. I think I, I would pick up on, which is that for me, um, I absolutely, you know, hundred percent agree that tonally the film felt so right and so of a piece with the first film, and kind of jaw dropping for large sections in terms of what you see uh, you know in terms of the visuals of this film what maybe didn't blow me away to the same extent is perhaps the narrative turns of the film and the central piece of plotting that you're sort of referring to and the the journey that we're on with the Ryan Gosling character and I would say also by extension maybe my my more negative takeaway um, if there was to be one from this film is that I felt that Ryan Gosling as an actor does uh, sort of part of this role um, very, very well. I just felt that the problem was that it didn't leave too much room for the ambiguity that seems to be central to the sort of Blade Runner mythology about whether or not our protagonist is indeed human. Because the performance from Ryan Gosling seems so like pared down at times as to be almost without life and and for me that sort of at, at certain moments presented a little bit of a problem am i wrong was i may have been harsh because i was hung over like you mark <laughs> no no you are absolutely right i mean they, they, the difficult thing with playing something that that isn't human that's not a spoiler that's why widely known that he's playing a, a replicant in the film um that you then kind of 
you have to make rules for how that thing behaves. Like, for example, there are moments in the film where he does kind of shout and scream and, and, and show some emotion. And those points feel so out of place because of how he is for the rest of the film. It leaves you scratching your head a bit because there should be kind of rules applied to how this thing behaves. And he's he's very good at doing the um, the kind of dead behind the eyes, kind of yeah. cold to what's going on around him. Those signs of this underlying uh desire or ambition to to feel more with what he goes through with with joy throughout the film which is very um melancholy to to, to watch uh, because you but at the same time you think but i know you don't really feel this so i'm not quite sure how much of this i should but, but buy into i was gonna say i suppose uh, to pick up on the point that you, that you mentioned about um you know the, the characters in this film are replicant but to me, it feels as if the the central philosophical um, exploration is about the parameters of what it is to be human and not human, um, or less than human in some sense, and and where lies the soul, and at what point, you know, do we um, do we actually judge that humanity is manifest in in an individual? And I think that. To, to place ourselves in that kind of strange, um, on that seesaw between where robotics, uh, replicants end and human beings begin required a performance with a bit more, uh, nimbleness than maybe Ryan Gosling had here. But then it's a very tall order and I do appreciate that. And I'm not an actor myself. And so it's very easy for me to say that you just need to uh, imbue this role with, you know, sort of that dead behind the eyes thing that you mentioned and a sort of burgeoning humanity. So, um, yeah, to, to move on from him, I, th- I think the final point that I would make is that although this is a film that seems to, um, objectify women uh, quite often, not least in the sort of advertising that we see writ large across the city and holograms and all the things that we're already familiar with, but then also slightly weird and I might say slightly misjudged love scene threesome involving a hologram. Um, I also would say on the other side of that, that there are some quite strong, um, if sometimes brief, female performances, not least from Robin Wright, who I think is very good in this. Uh, a favorite, She's great, yeah. Yeah, a favourite of mine cropped up, and that's Mackenzie Davis from Holt and Catch Fire, um, who I always enjoy seeing in wherever she might be uh, involved. Uh, I thought she was really good. Uh, Sylvia Hooks uh, got to kick people in the face, so that was fun. Um, what did you make of the, the role that women played to, to wrap us up here, Mark? I mean, that it's been leveled at the film that it objectifies women. I think I would counter that by saying that maybe what it's showing us is a sort of, um, projection of our current squab, slightly squalid society as it is in the year 2049. But I mean, what do you make of those roles and, and how they bedded in with the story as a whole? Uh, well, I can see, um, some of the criticisms that had leveled at it, but then I would say what we have going on at the moment, what with, with Harvey Weinstein and everything that we as a uh, species are the right word. We're not as uh, evolved on the equality front as we would, would like to think we are. Yeah. That no, That's not more clear. Couldn't be more, made more clear than it has been the last couple of weeks. So when you take into account that, um, say that those kind of, uh, base impulses behaviors desires from from men continues as they have done for hundreds of years into the future i know it's not that far in the future this film but if those are the people that this technology is being created for um it makes sense that those are the roles that would be put forward into the 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 film in terms of joy and also the, the the kind of prostitute characters i would have liked to see more of robin wright 
um, mm. as a character and that with the position of authority that, that she has, because I think she's, she's, she's brilliant. I think there's not enough of her in that. It would have been nice to have seen a bit more of that kind of female character in there. But the ones that are in there, I think do still kind of sit right with me, mainly in the terms of, I, I saw it as a further continuation of the kind of characters that were in the first film as well. It, it, it's a, it's maybe a missed opportunity, but um, I thought that Joy especially kind of um, as an artificial intelligence almost showed up. Sorry, the actress that played Joy kind of showed up Ryan Gosling as what it is to play something that's not human but yeah. has emotion because I felt lots of empathy for her yeah. and um, less so for, for for him. But But to write her off as kind of like a like a sex robot character, I did feel is very unfair because um, I think she carried a lot of kind of pathos and, and empathy with her throughout the film. Thanks for yeah. giving me the easy question at the end. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the actress that you, you're mentioning, Anna Darmas, I'm reading that off the screen. I, I didn't remember it, but yeah, um, in, incredibly beautiful actress, but a really, uh, I think strong performer here. I don't know if I've seen it anywhere else. Uh, maybe I haven't and haven't, no, oh no, I know. Paul's pointed out she was in Knock Knock with uh, Keanu Reeves and Eli Roth's wife. Um, oh, okay. But um, yeah, hopefully, you know, she's going to find the the roles that she is worth in the in the future. And yeah, I just, I mean, that I guess a lot of attention was given to that sort of weird threesome thing, and I just felt like it was all a bit leery and unnecessary. We were kind of aware of the nature of sort of um, sex and commerce in the future without having to see a, a, a weird hologram sex scene. But, you know, um, you got to get bums on seats or whatever, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, on the subject of that scene specifically, though, I mean, I can see, again, why people have some issue with it. But um, I thought it was uh, inventive at the very least. I'd not seen anything oh, yeah. like it before or even attempted. So I, I think um, it may be a scene that um, may have been easier to sell if maybe Ryan Gosling character was making you believe that he kind of gave a damn yeah, <laughs> like sure. about what this what this AI was doing for him because that's a pretty what she's doing for an AI is actually uh, a pretty what's the word like profound thing she's trying to do for this guy and I think watching it we felt like he didn't really care which... yeah yeah I, I think I would agree and I think to, to go back to the point you made at the beginning of, of this section that uh yeah that maybe um the whoever was involved on the visual effects side with that scene would sort of uh ref, absolutely just hands down refuse to have that cut from the film because it was such a virtuoso piece of work so um yeah it was yeah. it was very interesting to have it there to say to say the least i can now see your face on the screen which is the first time during this chat that i have been able to do so which is uh both oh, wow. great and and slightly didn't off, mean for that to happen point. No, I think I think producer Jack's done that. <laughs> I don't know um, how that happened. I I better bring this thing into port because um, I am expected on a uh, on a business meeting arrangement in about fifteen minutes' time. So um, thank you so much, Mark, for making the time to come and guest on the show. And if it hasn't been too much of an ordeal, would you be prepared to come back next week? If I haven't been too crap, then absolutely. Oh, I, I would thank you very much. It's quite, been great. <laughs> it has. No, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up very soon. Check out the uh, next episode of the show if you would like to get more of myself talking to Mr. 
Mark Brennan. You can find us at Stranger Cinema on Twitter, and of course, you can find all the previous episodes of this show via the SoundCloud page, uh, SoundCloud, SoundCloud page, which is Strangers in a Cinema. But until next time, I've been Pete Wall for Mark Brennan and Jack Mills. We're out. Shut up and sit down.